All right, if you've, uh, if you've got your Bibles with you, go ahead and open them up to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 3, it's, uh, it's over in the Old Testament, the first, the first half of the book, not, uh, not too terribly far into it. And um, if you need to use the index, go ahead. It's kind of an obscure book, I, I understand. wanted to mention to you as well, if perhaps uh, you don't have a copy of the, the translation of the Bible. I, I preach from the English Standard Version. If you don't have a copy of that and would like a copy, we've got these that are free that are out at the welcome desk. If you would like to pick one up, feel free to, to pick one up. You can use it, take it home, uh, have with you, bring here. It's, it's just the version from which I preach. So if you want one of those, or if you don't have a copy of the Bible, or if you know someone who doesn't, feel free to pick one of these up and, uh, and put it to use. Uh, we make them available for you and want to want to make that available for, for you to be able to use if there is a need there. In Nehemiah chapter 3, we've been going through the book of Nehemiah. Uh, we started in chapter 1, verse 1, a few weeks ago. And um, the, the whole premise, I want to set this up for you again so you understand where we are and what's going on. Nehemiah was part of what is known as the Babylonian captivity for ancient Israel. The nation of Israel had rebelled against God. They had been involved in idolatry and uh, just a rebellion and disobedience against God. And so God used this foreign pagan army, the Babylonians, to come in. They overtook Israel, uh, the, the southern kingdom, Judah there, and they took them away into captivity into Babylon. Nehemiah is one of the men who is there, and while, while he is there, he gets a report from his brothers. He asks about Jerusalem, the capital city of the nation of Israel, and he says, hey, how's it going in Jerusalem? And they tell him the walls around Jerusalem are completely destroyed. Now, this, this had a devastating effect on Nehemiah. Number one, because he loved the city of Jerusalem. He loved his homeland, as any of us would if we had been taken into captivity to some invading army. Uh, we, would, we would want to know how things are going back home if there was still a home. And it would be like us hearing that Washington is in shambles. Things are just destroyed all over the place. Um, and uh, I thought about making a political joke there, but I won't do that, okay? We'll, we'll carry on. Uh, I think I just did, didn't I? <clears throat> Sorry about that. Um, anyway, so he hears that the walls around Jerusalem are, are just, they're, they're trounced. They're, they're crumbled around. And it breaks his heart for two reasons. Number one, the walls around a city were protective of that city. Okay, So if the walls are destroyed, it makes it susceptible to enemies who might seek to come back in and do harm. And so he's concerned about the safety of the people who are still there. And also, if you remember, uh, the, the city of Jerusalem was God's city. It was Zion, the city set on a hill. And when you see the, the, the city in ruins like this, it is, it's an affront to the glory of God. So the people all around, the nations all around, they say, yeah, look at that city there. Their God surely is something, isn't He? And so Nehemiah was concerned for the glory of God. He was concerned for the safety and the security and the protection of the people. And so he says, we're going to go back. He goes back after praying at great lengths about this. The Lord sends him back, and they're going to rebuild the walls around the city of Jerusalem. 
And uh, last week we looked at, uh, at, at this, this midnight walk, this nighttime walk ride that Nehemiah took around the city just to evaluate things, see where things are and how bad it really is. And then he tells the people, this is what the Lord's laid on my heart to do. This is how the Lord has strengthened and how He has led in this. And the people said, all right, let's do it. Let's arise and build. And then we come to chapter 3. Let's just walk through some of this this morning, okay? Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated as far as the tower of the hundred, as far as the tower of Hananel, and next to him the men of Jericho built. Next to them, Zakur, the son of Emri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the sons of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Benar, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Joy to the son of Peir. You want me to stop now? I mean, you know, you... you um, you make this New Year's resolution every year in January. This is the year I'm going to read through the Bible this year. And you get through Genesis good, you get through Exodus good, Leviticus you kind of trudge through, uh, Numbers like, oh, okay, we got some good spots in there, Deuteronomy, hey, haven't we read this before? Joshua, oh, this is good, oh, I can do this. Judges, what well, some great stories. And then eventually you, you, you make your way to First Chronicles, and that's where you begin to read that so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, the son of so-and-so, uh-uh, no, I ain't doing that. And it, that's where it falls. That's where it ends so often. And that's kind of what we find here in Nehemiah chapter 3. These genealogies. This, this, this listing of people involved in the work. It's not really the stuff devotional books are made of, is it? You probably don't find many devotional thoughts out of the book of Nehemiah. And you may even be thinking to yourself, oh my goodness, is he going to preach an entire sermon over the whole chapter of these names and this work? Yes, he is. And I hope today to bring some encouragement to you as we look at the work that proceeds from the call of God and the work of God in the life of Nehemiah and the people around him. And it's also a good place for us to remind ourselves of the simple truth that we find over in the New Testament in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, where we read there that all Scripture is God-breathed. It's breathed out by God and profitable. Well, does that include Nehemiah 3? Sure does. Does that include 1 Chronicles 1? Sure does. What is it profitable for? Paul tells us. He says it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Just, just to kind of lay this again as an aside, what you have here is God's Word to us. And it is breathed out by God and profitable for us. How much of it? All of it. All of it. All Scripture is breathed out by God. And so this morning, let's, uh, let's see if we can discover some of the profitability of God's Word in our lives in Nehemiah chapter 3. 
I want you to notice in Nehemiah chapter 3, I didn't read all of the chapter. Uh, you can go back and do that. The pattern is, is still kind of the same, but that's what I want you to notice. I want you to notice the pattern that is here in the book of Nehemiah as we lay out the rebuilding of the wall. And what we find in the pattern was that every person, every group found an organized spot and they began to do the task. They began to do the work that was taking place. When you come to Nehemiah chapter 3 and you have all of these names that are listed for us, you recognize that each person had a part in the work. Each person had a job to do. Because listen, no one can do everything, but everyone can do something. And it's a pattern that you find here in Nehemiah chapter 3, where the attitude of the people was, what I can do, I ought to do, and what I can do and ought to do, by the grace of God, I will do. That was their attitude. There's a job that needs to be done. There is a need to be fulfilled. I am able to do that by the grace of God and the strength of God, and I'm going to do this. As you've heard before, the, the, the Christian life and being involved in the church and the work that we have is not like a football game where you got 70,000 people in the stands in great need of exercise and 20 people on the field in great need of arrest. That's not the way church works. It's not the way our community is designed. This is not the classic situation that you find in most churches where 20% of the people are doing 80% of the work. You've heard me throw that statistic around a bit, and, and, and I'm not even sure that's right. I'm not even sure it's not more likely 10% of the people are doing 90% of the work from, from time to time. This is what you find in the book of Nehemiah in chapter 3. There is a job to be done and something you can do in the accomplishing of that job. We hit on this last week. We talked about Nehemiah going out and surveying things. We kind of hit on this just a little bit last week in the reminder that quite honestly, some of you need to pick up some pieces of the puzzle and get involved. Because if it is the case that a certain percentage is doing most of the work, that means that most of the percentage still has something to do. And some people need a break here and there Maybe there's something you could do. Maybe there's something you could do to get involved in working for the glory of God by the strength of God in the Spirit of God. Because, friends, listen, if we are ever going to take seriously the mandate that has been given to us by Jesus Christ that we're to go into all the world and make disciples of all the nations, it demands all of the people getting involved. There's no room for pew sitters. There's no room for observers alone. Can't have a group of just spectators. Calls for total mobilization of the troops. Everybody's got to get involved in this. That means there is something for you to do. You know how I know it is that there's something for you to do? Because you're here. And if you're not here, there's something for you to do wherever it is that you are. And when it's to the point where you don't have anything else to do, well, God will take you home then. Let Him decide that, not you. There's a work to be done. Will we all get involved in doing the work? And here you have this wall that needs to be repaired. 
This wall that represents the glory of God among the nations in this city. This wall that represents the security of the people. And here's what you have going on. You have this wall. It's, it's, it's anywhere between one and a half miles to two and a half miles total length. And it's divided up into about 40 sections that you read as you go through Nehemiah. And while you have this, you will have a gate, entrance into the city. Then you'll have a section of wall. Then after that section of wall, you'll have another gate, entrance into the city. Then at that gate, you'll have another section of wall. And so on and so on it goes, all the way around the city of Jerusalem. Wall, gate, wall, gate, wall, gate, all the way around until the final wall section and the original gate section meet up together with one another. And what you see within this broken down for us is that there are individuals with their part to play. And typically, these individuals are part of a little bit larger group, maybe, maybe a family group, maybe a merchant group, something of that nature. You have an individual that's part of a small group, and then you have this small group that is part of the entirety of the big group rebuilding the wall around Jerusalem. Now, can we just make some application of that to us as a church? Individually, you have a task to accomplish for the glory of God through the empowerment of the Spirit of God. Individually, you have something to do. But in the individual nature of that, you need to be a part of a small group where you're working together with others, growing in relationship with them, and then together we are part of the bigger group gathering here like this that we are this morning. And that was the pattern. This is what you see in Nehemiah chapter 3. Each person did their part, did their job as part of a group, and each group did its part as part of the larger group, the entirety of the people around the city. Listen, friends, this is what we have to understand. We've, we've really, over the past years, uh, I think that we've kind of missed this because oftentimes we've talked about this idea of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, do I believe in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Absolutely. God doesn't have grandchildren, okay? So you must have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ to know God as your Father. But what we've done is, is we've made our religion an individualized form of religion so that it's just about me and my relationship with Christ. And friends, I want you to know, the Bible doesn't know anything of an individualized form of religion. It is not just a personal relationship with God that is disconnected from the community of God's people from the church. The Bible doesn't know anything about that. In, in fact, you won't find anything like that in the New Testament. The teachings of Paul, the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of John, you don't find anything like that within their teachings. It is true that we can and we should have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. But it seems, it seems that so many of us from that have come to the conclusion that this personal relationship with Jesus Christ is the total expression of what it means to be a Christian. And that is not the case. Who we are individually in Christ is related to who we are in relationship to other Christians back and forth within our lives. The, the Bible doesn't know anything about this individualized form of religion. It's just not there. There's no solo flying to heaven. 
There are no Lone Ranger Christians. We are saved and we're brought into the community of the church because God has a purpose, has purposes for our church and our community that cannot be achieved apart from us together with one another. We belong together, we need to be together, and the task is so large that we must do it together. We have to. That's the pattern that you see here in Nehemiah. You have these individual people, part of a small group of people, all part of the larger group of rebuilding the wall. That's what happens in the pattern. But let's move beyond that to notice the people themselves. Now, again, I'm not going to read through the whole of of chapter 3. You can go back and do that. But what you'll find as you read through chapter 3 is you're going to find some people who are described as being perfume makers, some who are goldsmiths. You've got priests. You've got rich. You've got poor. You've got city officials. You've got citizens. You've got men. You've got women. You've got married people. You've got single people. You've got rulers. You've got laborers. You even got some people from out of town that are coming in to help accomplish the task. Now, I will say, it is true that you just about never get 100%. When you look at verse 5 in Nehemiah chapter 3, you see that. Next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their Lord. Well, that is beneath me. I'm not going to do construction. I'm not going to move rocks. After all, I am noble. Whatever. Next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop. James Boyce, he's, uh, he's preached through uh, the book of Nehemiah, and his commentary on this, it, it, was, it was so funny to read the quote from, from this Presbyterian minister when he says, there are always a few turkeys in the bunch. <laughs> thought that's pretty, pretty good. There are always some like that. There's always a few turkeys in the bunch. Come along and say, well, if they want to do it, just go ahead and let them try. But we're not going to have any part of it. We're not going to do this. And you know what's so sad? Here it is. Forever written down in God's book, that there were certain people when there was a job to be done, they wouldn't do it. That's sad to me. That's really sad to me that these nobles, when there was a task to be done, they wouldn't do it, and God has recorded it in His book. And friends, I want you to know, I pray that God will not need to write that about me or about you. That there was a task, but he wouldn't do it. There was a job, but she wouldn't do it. What is so encouraging to me out of this is, as sad as it is to read this, what is encouraging to me to read this is that the disgruntled attitude of their leaders did not stop the rest of them from working. The rest of them came to work. Because they knew there was a task, they knew there was a job, it was for the glory of God, and they were not going to allow the attitudes of the people around them to influence them negatively against doing the job. How many times has that happened to you? Better yet, how many times have you instigated that? task to be done, a job to be done, and maybe through your negativity, 
I'm not going to do that. You've influenced others to not be a part of it. Well, you know, he makes a good point. Well, you know, that's, that's, that's really pretty, pretty, pretty spot on there. I think maybe he's right. We won't do it either. Happens all the time. But not with the men of Tekoa here. They didn't let it happen. Friends, listen, I want you to understand this. I want you to grab hold of this in what God is doing through His people that these are days of incredible opportunity. These are golden days. These are glorious days for the kingdom of God. Don't you miss it. Don't you miss out on what God wants to do through you in, in, in renewing His work, in renewing His people. Don't miss what God has to do. Don't let the final record be written and let it be written of you that when these great days so rich with opportunity came that you didn't have a part in it. That no, you, you wouldn't stoop to do that. People here in Nehemiah chapter 3, my goodness, when you read about these people, and even as we get to the end of this later on, and the accomplishment that came through their work, here, here are these people, they approach the building of this wall with such commitment, with, with such fervor to the task. You, you can't imagine the commitment that was needed to do what they did. When we talk about building this wall, we're not talking about little stones that you can just pick up and set up. No, we're talking about massive stones around the city that had to be put in place and had to link up and connect with the gates going on around the city as well. This was an incredible task. The commitment was great to it. But imagine the enthusiasm that they had to have in the doing of it. We'll discover how enthusiastic they were as we move along and, and how long it took them to finish this. It's incredible. But it, it, it just gives me pause for just a moment to ask, are, are we enthusiastically committed to the work of the gospel? I mean, are we? Are we enthusiastically committed to the work of the gospel and doing what God has called us to do? Would the people around you know that you're enthusiastically committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ? Would, would they be able to look into your life, the people you work with, the people you go to school with, the people you hang out with, would they be able to look into your life and say, you know what, I know what makes him tick. I know what makes her tick. It's all about Jesus for them. You have all different kinds of people here in Nehemiah 3. Family relationships, geographical relationships based on the town which they came from. You have relationships based on their crafts. You have relationships based on their trading, merchants that were involved here. Religious relationships with the priests and the high priest. You have political relationships. When you get down to verse 12... Excuse me, you even have this dad with his daughters working to rebuild the wall. All kinds of relationships that are going on here. All of them split up, but working to effectively rebuild this wall. Can I just make application to us within this this morning? 
I believe wholeheartedly in, in a large a gathering like this where we worship the Lord together. I don't care how large it is, 30, 3,000. It doesn't matter to me. But I believe in God's people gathering together where people are able to come together and offer praise in community that, that can't be done quite the same way in a small group. Where, where you can give in a community, in a large group that can't really be done in the same way in a small group. But I also believe that if you bring people together in this large group, they have to establish those relationships in the smaller group that we find going on here in Nehemiah chapter 3. The people are all different, and yet the task is the same, and that's what unites them together. Can I say for us within the church, we're all different. Not, not really as, as, as different as we might think at times. But the thing that unites us within the church is the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The thing that unites us is not what we have in common educationally uh, as far as our finances is concerned. None of that is what unites us. What unites us is the work of the gospel of Jesus Christ because we've been brought into the family. That's the thing that should bind us. That's the thing that when we are different, we say our differences don't matter because what we have in common is a heavenly Father and a relationship through Jesus Christ. See, bu building the church, listen, when I talk about that, I'm talking about the people, not the building. Building the church doesn't come with, with bricks that come out of a machine the same size and same shape. It's relatively easy to build that way. I, I, I like what Alistair Begg says it's like. He said it's not like building with bricks, it's like building with bananas. That's what it's really like. You ever tried to build anything with bananas? They're funny shapes and some of them are soft and some of them are hard and some of them are green and some of them are overripe. Uh, some of them are very tender, some very sensitive. It's a hard project to build like that. But the issue is not the building material or even the laborers. The issue is the task at hand, building for the glory of God. Because you see, when we talk about building the church, we're not building a building, we're building lives. We're building people. We're building community. Here you have all of these groups together with the goal and the task being the glory of God and the rebuilding of the wall. Now, see, let's, let's move beyond this, from the pattern, from the people, to finally notice the places that we have here. I want you to notice this, and, and if you've got your Bible still open in Nehemiah chapter 3, let's just read some of these verses and get this. Look at, look at verse 21. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house. Of Eliashib. Look down at verse 23. After them, Benjamin and Hashub repaired opposite their house, the wall in front of their house, in other words. After them, Azariah, the son of Messiah, son of Aniah, repaired beside his own house. Come down to verse 28. Above the horse gate, the priest repaired, each one opposite his own house. Look at verse 29. After them, Zadok, the son of Emmer, repaired opposite his own house. 
Come down to the latter part of verse 30. After him, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. You get what's happening here? This wasn't a long commute to work, so most, most excuses and objections are gone. The people literally stepped out of their door and they worked on repairing whatever was right in front of them. They worked on building whatever was right there. Now, does that make sense? I guess it's so obvious we don't even think about it, but there's no need from somebody on, on the western side to go over to the eastern side of Jerusalem and repair a wall there. Now, let's just step outside and do it. Now, this is a great motivation to build rightly, you know it? Because remember one of the purposes of the wall, remember what it was? Protection, security. You're going to build the wall in front of your house well, aren't you? Because that's where your family is. You want it done right. Because you want to protect your family. You want to make sure your family is taken care of. Well, the, the application is obvious to us. Friends, start right at your own family. If our goal given by Jesus is to make disciples of all nations, you know where you need to start with that? Your family. You know who needs to be my greatest priority in making, or my first priority in making disciples? Leanne, Haddon, and Grace. That's who. That's my first priority. Friends, start with your family. Build the wall of God's Word around your family. And see, here's what's great. Nehemiah describes what this is like. And I just want, I want to show you one more thing, and then we'll be done, okay? Nehemiah describes what happens. And, and he, he starts, if you were to look at Jerusalem on a map, Nehemiah would start at the 12 o'clock position, and he would go counterclockwise around the city, talking about so-and-so built this section, so-and-so did this gate. So-and-so built this section, so-and-so did this gate. So-and-so built this section, so-and-so did this gate. All the way around. All the way around the city. You see, you, you, you find that. Look, look again at, at, at verse 1. We read that Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brothers the priests and they built the sheep gate. Now come down to verse 32. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. You get it? We're going to start right here at the sheep gate. And then we go all the way around. And then there we are. The wall is attached to the sheep gate. Now, I don't know if we can make too much of this or not, but I'm going to. Because the sheep gate was significant. The sheep gate was incredibly significant. It had its name because of what happened there. The sheep gate was the gate where animals would be brought into the city. Including 
and especially the animals that were used in the sacrificial system. All of this that went on in Jerusalem, all of the sacrifices that were required, the animals came in through the sheep gate. And in fact, the sheep gate is the only gate, we read about it in chapter 3, verse 1, it is the only gate that is referenced as being consecrated, that is dedicated to God in a special way. Only that gate, only that gate is referenced in this way. As I say, it's the gate through which the animals would pour for the sacrifices. Why did you have the sacrifices? A constant reminder of the severity of sin. Constant reminder of the penalty of sin. The wages of sin is death. And every time an animal was brought to be sacrificed, it was a reminder to that person that my sin is serious and my sin requires death. It's a reminder of the cost of sin. An innocent life without spot or blemish necessary to die for a guilty, sinful person. And the animals came right in through the sheep gate. Boy, is that not significant for us? Does that, have not, does, does that not have some meaning for us? That in this very chapter... Hundreds of years before Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem and died on the cross, it's like Nehemiah is once again pointing to the ultimate sacrifice for our sin. His name is Jesus Christ. It's why John the Baptist stands up and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But you know what's amazing about this? Wake up for a minute just so you can grab this, if nothing else, okay? Look at verse 3. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. Another one of these gates. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and bars. Grab that. Verse 6. Joiada, the son of Passe, and Meshulam, the son of Besadira, repaired the gate of Yeshanah. They laid its beams, set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. Verse 13, set its bolts and bars. Verse 14, set its bolts and bars. Verse 15, set its bolts and bars. But do you notice something about the sheep gate in verse 1 and verse 32? There are no bolts, there are no bars. So what? So what? What are bolts and bars used for? Lock the door and latch it tight. When you have the sheep gate through which the sacrifice comes, the door doesn't lock and it's not bolted and barred. When you are ready to walk through and experience the salvation that God has for you, it is wide open for you. There's no closing of it. There's no barring of it. And God is not going to say to you, no, you cannot come in if you desire salvation through Jesus Christ alone. He's not going to lock you out. He's not going to tell you there's not room for you in His kingdom if you come 
to desire Jesus Christ. He's not going to say, nope, the gate is barred and the lock is bolted. You're doomed. He's not going to say that to you. The way is never closed in this life to the lost sinner who wants to come to the Savior. Never. See, friends, you've got a task. You've got a job. It's part of the greater job that God has given to us as the church to make disciples of all nations. Simple question. What are you doing? What are you doing? For His glory and by His power, what are you doing? Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You for the reminder from Your Word once again that You use us for Your glory and that You have a task for us for Your glory. Father, for us as Your people here, I pray that You would use us and that You would set us the task that You have for us and that You would empower us through Your Spirit. Father, I pray today for those who do not know You. Father God, I pray today, please, would You speak through Your Spirit to that person's heart. Remind them of the salvation that is available in Jesus Christ alone. Draw them to Yourself, Father, please, that they might come to know You. And that through knowing You, they might know themselves and know Your people. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.